You can find us on the broadcast dial at 90.5 FM. Download the WJFF Radio app to your digital phone or listen live on our website, wjffradio.org. from Abandoned Cider, local hard cider made with your backyard orchard apples. PickYourApples.com. Support comes from you and from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles, as well as rustic collections with showrooms at Lake Wallenpapak, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, Pennsylvania. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. Exotic animals, British and Irish folk songs about elephants, lions and more. They'll be featured in the next Wagload of Monkeys here on WJFF. Join me, Graham Rice, as we gallop through the jungle on Sunday at 12 noon. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. This is Rosie Starr, host of Farm and Country. Join us Saturday mornings at 11 for WJFF's locally produced radio show relating to life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. Tune in to 90.5 FM, stream us live, or listen to the archive on our website, wjffradio.org. See you Saturday, just after Radio Chatskill and before Catskill Character. Support comes from Two Queens, offering fresh roasted coffee, fine teas, and local honey. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York. Coffee, tea, and bees. TwoQueensHoney.com Support comes from The Calicoon Theater, an updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at www.thecalicoontheater.com Join us now as we explore the Catskills from the foothills to the high country and both sides of the Delaware River, meeting amazing people here on Catskill Character. Good morning. Welcome to Catskill Character. I'm Donna Fellenberg. My guest today is Murmur Blakesley. Murmur's a skier, a writer, a gardener, and a teacher. She was born in the Catskills, the youngest of five siblings, and she's the only Sib who remains in the Catskills, a true Catskill character. She's been skiing since the age of three, has written three novels, and published lots of poetry. Another of her passions is gardening. Her garden was photographed for Garden Design magazine. She's also a wife, mother, and grandmother. How does a person manage all of these talents? Well, we're about to find out. Here's my conversation with Murmur Blakesley. 
Murmur, welcome to Catskill Character here at WJFF. I'm so happy to see you, finally to meet you. Thanks, I'm glad to be here. By the way, I love that name, Murmur. Is that a family name? <laughs> it's my nickname that is now my legal name. Oh, okay. And it has a long story, but I won't tell it. Okay. <laughs> well, you were born and raised in the Catskills in Wyndham, New York, correct? Yeah. I'm a heck. <laughs> I, I'm from I'm from these mountains, and they've chosen me now too. What What do you think was the best thing about growing up in Wyndham? Um, living with my grandfather, he couldn't read or write. He was born in 1881. He was like uh, no one I've ever met before or since. He was a great storyteller, and he used to say. He'd tell me stories, and he'd go, when I was a little girl, <laughs> and I'd say, Pop, you never were a little girl, and he'd, he wouldn't back down. He'd only get this, he'd only let me hear the story if I accepted when I was a little girl, and I realized later that that's the perfect first move of a storyteller, to go right into your audience and start there. Mm -hmm. Really get them involved. Yeah, yeah. What do you think was the hardest thing about growing up in that area? Uh, the smallness. The smallness. I, I, I mean, I, I love it in a way. I love small towns. I'm back here in the Catskills, but I knew I had to get out. Everybody knows they have had to get out. And uh, anybody who doesn't get out is a loser. So when I came back, I thought the first thing I thought was, well... I'm a loser. Oh, I don't know if I agree <laughs> That's with the that. Way you feel. I I know it's not true because some of my great friends are never never felt that way. But, but as that's a kid, the way I felt. Kid yes, growing up, yeah. I just felt I had to get out. It was so small. Well, you found a way out when you were a teenager. You went to a free school. So I'd like you to <laughs> what you call yeah. the free school. Tell mm -hmm. us what that was and how you got your parents to agree <laughs> to send you. I gave them a lecture. <laughs> <laughs> you were all of like 14 years old or 12, something? 12 or 13. Oh. I gave them a lecture and they knew they didn't they knew I was chafing to get out of Wyndham and I wasn't um happy in the school system and I had read a lot about free schools schools without grades and so I gave them a little lecture on why uh, schools without grades don't um, kill your love for lear learning and help you develop discipline behind what you're passionate about. And I still believe that to this day. I think grades do nothing but um, but cultivate mediocrity mm -hmm. <laughs> and that they're really damaging for kids. So um, they sent me off. Uh, I was so fortunate to be sent off. I found the school, Burke Mountain Academy in northern Vermont, um, and it was also a ski racing school. So even though we didn't have grades, we had to get up at 6.30 every morning and go running for four or five miles. Mm. It was very, very rigorous uh, physical training program. Uh, only about 20 of us. It was fabulous. I still, I'm indebted to that place. Really, it was the beginning of my life. But what, when you were there, you discovered that you you had what you called a reading disorder. How did you manage oh, that? Yes, um, 
I it was never called a reading disorder until later, but um, we were supposed to read about 800 uh, words a week. I mean, 800 pages a week. And I started to get nervous reading. And I started to um, look at other people reading books with envy because I would really want to read that book. But I got so I was so crazy trying to read so much that I I could only read about four pages an hour by the time it got very severe. So I went to my friend, the headmaster, Warren Witherall, and I talked to him about it. And I burst into tears and I said, uh, this is really bad. I can't read anymore. Uh, I can only read poetry and the I Ching and things like that, things that take a lot of it where you spend a lot of time on one word and he listened to me for a long time and he said merm what you're trying to do is you're trying to write every every sentence you're trying to write the book you're reading he was so correct because i would read a simple sentence like mary walked to the store and i'd visualize mary so completely by the time i got to the store i'd forget mary i you know I, I I was really building the story in my mind as I went along. So he was so, so right. And he never called it a disorder. He never sent me off to a pathologist. He just said, let's, let's get you to relax and read books you've already read. And let's develop just a little diversity so that if you want to uh, skim through some science article, you can do that. And if you want to read deeply the I Ching and, and spend an hour on every word, you can do that too. So just develop more diversity. But mostly he saw my gift as a writer as a gift and not as a disability. <laughs> and, and he saw the connection into that disorder of reading. And I've never been a fast reader, but he at least got me into reading somewhat normally. That's fantastic. I mean, if you had yeah. been in a more rigid, <laughs> traditional kind of school, God knows what, what oh would have happened. Oh, my God, yes. I'd, I'd definitely be, be sent off immediately to a pathologist Yeah, for probably many been reasons. Diagnosed. And, yeah. <laughs> yes. So, okay, so you, you, you went to four years of high school mm-hmm. there, and then you went to college in, in mm-hmm. Iowa, and after you graduated, you lived in Iowa City. Yes. Uh, you traveled it's around. beautiful city. Yeah. Iowa City is... A great place. But eventually, you came back (laughs) to the Catskills. What did you feel moved you? Well, in Iowa City, I started uh, writing not just poetry, but prose. And I I started a novel. And uh, it came in my grandfather's voice. And so I knew I had to get back to the Catskills, to a place where I could be part of it and I wasn't considered an outsider and so I could spend more time around people that I wanted to write about and the place where I felt so uh that that had started inhabiting my imagination I wanted to go back there and I also had a kid and um, a bad marriage, so I was getting divorced. So I, uh, my mother said she'd help me raise my child. 
So there were many reasons Lots to Lots of back. compelling yes. reasons to come But back. it was not because I thought it was a beautiful place. I felt really bad about the fact that I was returning to the Catskills. I just, I, there was no culture there at the time. It was in the early 80s. I was really, I was really worried. Mm-hmm. Well, you made lemonade out of lemons, <laughs> so we'll get to that. It's a, it's a different um, place. I, I'm very interested in what you said about poetry. You told me that poetry is a gift that comes to you here and there, but novels are the work. It, it takes a lot of discipline, doesn't it? Before we talk about your strategy, I was hoping that maybe you could read one of your poems. Oh, yeah. This, this poem came uh, without a lot of work. Small Steps. For a single day, do not use disposable plastic. Each meal, eat only what you love. Thank the water in your shower and its well-traveled heat. For an hour or so, allow the past to swallow you. Stop working. Remember the dead. Use November as a model. Do not wish to be spring. Go to bed willingly. Ask forgiveness from the pillow for the heaviness of your head. Do not apologize. Mm. That poem is very intense. <laughs> and But, you know, you can really stay with it. The only... Yeah place where I kind of stumble is about November. I didn't get that. Use November as, as a model. Yeah. Do not wish to be spring. Oh, in other words, stay in that moment of November. That's it's like a transition yeah. into winter. November's a tough month. It is. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I, the beautiful. older I get, the more I love November. Mm-hmm. November's really, <laughs> it's a sleeper month. <laughs> What's your strategy about managing time for your writing? I'm not very good at it, but when I'm working um, on a on a long project, I I start with um, let's say four hours a day, but it takes about six hours to get four hours in because someone might call that you have to take that call or you have to fix lunch and you have to do the laundry, so I clock out and clock back in, and then I add up all my minutes, and I can't leave that until after four hours. And it's, yeah, six or eight-hour day, you get four uninterrupted hours in. But then once I get involved in a project, then I don't have to do that. I Then I, you know, you have to knock on my head to get me to stop writing. What's difficult in writing, and why I say this, this one uh, poem, Small Steps, Yes, it came without too much work. All Every bit of writing takes a lot of work. My husband says I would edit a grocery list if I could. Um, <laughs> but it didn't take too much. But what it had was the emptiness around my life to be able to write. That's the work, shoving a lot of other things back so that you create an emptiness, a fertile emptiness mm-hmm. from which you can write. Do you use gardening as kind of a therapy to help you with the demands of writing? <laughs> Initially, my gardening was a transition after, out of my very, very extroverted and in, 
intensely physical and intensely um, psychological and social and uh, engaged with people life of ski teaching. And then I'd come back into the very solitary life of writing. And gardening was a beautiful transition, getting me down into the ground and into my silence. <laughs> but gardening has now taken over my life, so I can't, I don't know if I can even call it a transition anymore. It's really, really addictive. Just, I would, I would actually tell everyone not to garden unless oh, they no. absolutely have to because it's highly addictive. <laughs> so you live these three lives, basically a writer, a skier, yeah. a gardener. How do you, how do you feel about that? It's hard. I, I know that I have a blessed life. I'm not complaining. I love my life. I can't give anything up. That's the problem. But as my dad said to me when I was about 10 years old, Merm, you're like a kid with too many ice cream cones and they're all melting. I've always had a lot of appetite <laughs> for life. And so I have a lot of angst going from one of my lives to the other because I do them all at such an intense level that um, I'm always behind. I'm always behind. I'm, uh, when I go into the ski world, I have been sitting around writing. And so everybody else has been hiking and doing their rollerblading and I come in out of shape. And then when I come out of this ski world, everybody else has been reading every story in the New Yorker. And I come out of it having read four sentences a night before I fall asleep. So I just, I'm always behind what I would like to do. I never have enough time. <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of angst involved yeah. in living my life. Well, that's a good lesson for people who are listening to you <laughs> to understand that when you see people who are extremely talented and not just necessarily in one area but in others and you think, oh, look at her. She's struggling just like you. Yeah, yeah. She's struggling. The yeah, I'm stressed. And I don't blame my life. My life is beautiful. I uh, And I have just wonderful I have a wonderful husband. I have wonderful friends. I I'm gift. I I've just been blessed so much in, in my life. But <laughs> it's me that's the problem. I have so much angst and guilt about not doing enough. Something's got to give. Yeah, you said. I said that. Yeah. Sometimes I wake up and I think something's got to give, and I hope it's not me. You've been listening to Catskill Character on WJFF Radio Catskill. Today, my guest is Murmur Blakesley. After a short break, I'll return with more from Murmur, so stay tuned. WJFF Spring Pledge Drive starts March 13th. We just sent a letter to listeners like you asking for support. And many of the challenges you hear during the drive come from generous $250, $500, and $1,000 responses to this letter. Make your contribution next. Send your gift today or give online at wjffradio.org. And help keep your community radio station community supported. Thanks. Welcome back to Catskill Character. I'm your host, Donna Fellenberg, with today's guest, Murmur Blakesley. 
In the first half of the show, Murmur told us about her three lives as a skier, a writer, and a gardener, who also happens to have a wonderful husband of 33 years, a son, and two grandsons. Oh, yes, and she has a very active social life. Sometimes it's too much having all of this abundance. Having to juggle time takes a lot of discipline. In the second half of the show, we're going to talk about skiing and fear. Murmur knows a lot about both. So let's get back to my conversation with Murmur Blakesley. Murmur, you mentioned that you started skiing at the age of three. Yeah, it wasn't my fault. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you lived on a mountain, so. Tell me more about your life as a skier. Well, I used to be a ski racer. Um, That's what brought me to Burke uh, Mountain Academy, the school I was telling you about. Um, And I then thought I was quitting for life. I never imagined I would go into skiing. I only started ski teaching for the money um, to support. I, I had this plan that I would write all summer and and work as a ski teacher all winter. The funny thing is, is that plan is still what I do, but it didn't work out at first the way I thought it would because I was only making $101 a week and I couldn't, I couldn't survive on that, especially with a little kid. Um, having started ski teaching for money, I stayed with it for love. I fell in love with teaching and I especially love teaching fearful people. Mm-hmm. And so I developed a niche in ski teaching, becoming really the ski industry's fear specialist. Yes, I'm really interested in this idea of fear as a metaphor. And you've you've written a book about it. It's called A Conversation with Fear. Yeah. Would you read yeah. that little blurb that's on the oh, back of yeah. the book? This ta- is taken from the book. By regarding fear as a pathology to control or cure... We assume that life without its presence is possible, normal, or even desirable. But once we accept fear as a habitual acquaintance in an imaginative, meaningful life, we can begin to cultivate a conversation with it rather than engage it in a fight. That is so true. And people do run their lives based on the fears that they have. Yeah, and the kind of fear that I talk about is the fear of surrender. When you have to jump into a moment and you have that moment where you don't know if you're going to fail or succeed, you have to surrender. You can't do what you've done before. Even if, let's say, you're going to talk to your sullen teenage son you know that you're going to have to come up with something you've never said before. You're going to have to respond to the moment at hand and listen to him and and be part of a wholeness that is between you and then respond. So respond with newness, with creativity, with with something that's never been done before. And so that's the kind of surrender we talk about. And that's the, and skiing is just a perfect metaphor for that. So how do you teach your students to surrender to their fear when they're on the mountain? Well, what we do is we, we get everybody understanding 
that it's about having a conversation with the fear. And at first, the conversation can start out quite crudely. And as it, it, as we develop our relationship with fear, it gets more and more refined, and differentiated, and it even gets helpful. <laughs> you know, this reminds me of the book that uh, a couple of, well, it was about a decade ago, Gavin DeBecca wrote a book called The Gift of Fear. And in that book, he's talking about how we all need to trust our gut instinct to avoid violence. But of course, you can also apply that so much to life. Mm -hmm. um, fear can really be a gift. Yeah. Yeah. By the end of the book, I talk about fear being your teacher. And it's very important to understand when it's holding you back and when it's necessary and to learn how to respect fear. Mm -hmm. And so that's all part of evolving this conversation between you and and the fear. And often we have two approaches to fear. We can rush through it or we can retreat from it. And uh, the first couple that I met that were great icons of both approach were named Robert and Jane. So all my fear clinicians and and all my fear students have developed the Robert Jane <laughs> discussion. We immediately deconstruct it from the gender because I'm a I'm a classic Robert. I know a lot of men are classic Janes, but a Jane is a person who retreats from fear, and Robert is a person who rushes through fear. They often envy each other, but both are not helpful, and you have to have stra different strategies for both of them. That for both of those approaches. So if you're a Robert and you're on the mountain, uh, what typically might you see from a Robert? Oh, Roberts, since they rush and they don't listen to anything, they're too scared. They want to get through it. They want to get it over with. Um, they are often uh, have jerky movements and abrupt movements. They don't have any grace, and they are trying to get the job done all by themselves. <laughs> they're not allowing for any um, naturalness, or they're not they're not relaxing in their joints. They're often having very very stiff joints, and and their bodies show all the fear. Well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of people that I know who are Roberts, mm -hmm. that they race through mm -hmm. life because they're so scared. Yeah, That's they're such scared a great, to stop. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you, um, having this metaphor that you just laid out in front of us can really help you to have more empathy for people. When you meet a Robert or you meet a Jane, you can understand them in a different way. Yeah, and Jane's, Robert's just often really envy Jane's because they look beautiful on the hill. But they'll be like, no, no, I'll do that tomorrow. No, no, mm. maybe to, maybe later I'll do that. And so they don't, they look graceful, they look happy, but they're often bored. And they want to be able to ski something a little difficult or even open the door and go into that conversation with their sullen son. But something is pulling them back. And so they constantly retreat. And that has its own problems. Yeah. Your comfort zone then shrinks around you. Then. Mm -hmm. And what about the Janes? Those are the Janes. Oh, the those are the Janes, the, yeah, right. The retreaters. The retreaters, yeah. 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 Okay, I got, lost. I got lost in your voice there for a minute. Uh -huh. <laughs> so what's your biggest fear right now? <laughs> oh, there's so many. They could go into categories. Um, 
I say I've never had um, a lot of luck dealing with my fear of failure. I talk about failure a lot. I think it's very, very important. And uh, it's a great fertile feeding ground for creativity. But I don't like it. I don't mm, like to fail. It's not comfortable. No. <laughs> Even if you know intellectually, oh, this Even is a great I fertile yeah, feeding I, ground. I tell myself this is going to be good. Something good is going to happen from this, but it's tough. And um, there are times in skiing that you can't fail, and there are times that failure is welcome. So it's really good to know those two different situations in your life and treat them each differently and with the respect they deserve. So failure is something I'm also developing a conversation with, but um, it's much easier to help someone else develop a conversation with failure than trying to help yourself deal with that fear. That's a mighty one. Well, my biggest fear right now is much more concrete than yours. (laughs) Mine is ticks. I, I fear going that out into respect. the garden. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. I'm practically wearing a suit of armor when I go out there. Yeah. What do you do? Because <laughs> you're in the garden constantly. I try, to, I try to be very observant when I get out of the garden. Yeah. I know. And every story makes you more nervous. Mm-hmm. I know. But that's um, something you cannot control except to take every precaution you can and be very vigilant but you can't you know it's not going to help in the middle of the night to worry about it Mm -hmm. and that's a very good example isn't it because if you let the fear run you i like for me i wouldn't go in the garden i wouldn't have all that enjoyment and all the the beauty that comes from it so that's a good example well that's an example of just saying this is one of the givens that you're given um, the givens you're given. It's one of the variables of going out to the garden. So what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to dress some people, put their pants in their socks and put... Yeah, I know, do that. <laughs> put rubber bands around their ankles. And you can take all sorts of precautions. But a lot of gardening is happening out there in the tick world. And mm-hmm. 